Welcome to Heller Hurwitz Office Hours, a podcast featuring University of Minnesota economists and their research. In the podcast, we'll explore economic topics that impact our daily lives and discuss economic research aimed at improving our understanding of major societal challenges. We'll highlight how careful economic research can inform policy decisions. trend toward rising income inequality in the U.S. has been studied and disputed among economists. Fatih Guvenin advances the scholarly discussion by exploring the concept of measuring inflation-adjusted lifetime income inequality over six decades. One stark takeaway is the widespread stagnation in the living standards of many American men. We also look at some preliminary data on the experience of younger groups who entered the labor market after 1983. So the trend toward rising income inequality has been studied a lot in, in the United States and other, in other countries. So how is income inequality typically measured? So in uh, the vast majority of cases, the data we have is uh, at a point in time. So it will be annual income. And the inequality measure will be in a given year how dispersed is income across different individuals. So it will just give a snapshot of inequality. I don't need to tell you, there's been a lot of studies about inequality, income inequality in the United States and elsewhere. I mean, why such a vast literature on this topic? Well, uh, because we know that income inequality goes hand in hand with a lot of negative outcomes for societies, especially when it is too high. So when inequality is very high, it means that there are some, you know, uh, workers, individuals whose incomes are very low and that can become self-sustaining you know, that can actually be that, you know, uh, low-income households, they are not able to invest in their children who also turn out to be, you know, have low income. So, and this this can create like really uh, prolonged periods of, you know, low incomes for millions and millions of individuals. That's one reason. It's also highly related to, for example, outcomes like crime, Longevity, for example, the higher is inc- income inequality, the shorter people typically live. So there are many negative you know, outcomes that you can relate it to, and that's why we care about it a lot. Now, you and your co-authors, you're not taking a snapshot. You're looking at lifetime inequality. So explain. Yes. So um, as I said at the beginning, most of the, the um, analysis of inequality is uh, snapshots, and that is actually driven by a data limitation. It's not that we didn't know lifetime inequality is important. It's that we really never had uh, data to measure the lifetimes of individuals. So if, if you think about a worker who works between ages of 25 and 60, you need to be able to follow this worker for 35 years and have data on them to calculate their lifetime income. But for many questions, you know, we know that that is the relevant measure. So think about, for example, an NFL rookie who makes a few million dollars, right? So you are age 22, you make millions of dollars, but by the time you are age, say, 40 or 50, you may be making a lot less than that. Whereas a a medical intern at age 30 makes, say, $50,000, but we know that, you know, at age 50, they will make a lot more. So if you take a snapshot at a point in time, you will get the wrong impression about actually the lifetime resources of individuals. That's why we care about lifetime inequality. Okay, I want to break this down some more, but give us first, what what were the overall results? Like what's the big picture result that you came from looking at lifetime inequality? So there were a number of important surprises. 
The first one, for example, is that uh, we hear so much about the rise in income inequality. But if you slightly change the question and ask uh, how much has lifetime inequality increased in the United States, the answer is that pretty much none. You know, the income inequality across the whole population has not changed all that much since like late 1960s. And if you delve deeper into it and you separate, say, men and women, lifetime inequality among men actually has increased and lifetime inequality among women has also increased. But when you put them together, what happened is the two income distributions became closer to each other. And by that, I mean the lifetime gender wage gap has closed. Women are now earning a lot more than they were in the 1960s relative to men. So in the whole population, the lifetime income inequality has not increased all that much, which is, I think, a very surprising (laughs) conclusion we don't hear every day. So what is driving what's happening with men? So for men, um, there's a problem, you know, and let me me, uh, uh, clarify what I mean. If you look at the median man, so that's the average male worker in the population, the lifetime income of the average man has been declining uh, roughly since the late 1960s. So when we talk about lifetime income, uh, uh, the concept is a bit different, so it requires a bit of an explanation. By lifetime income, what I mean is, think about the worker who entered the labor market in 1968. That turns out to be a turning year, actually. That's why I mentioned 1968. Uh, The lifetime income is measured in the next 30 years. So between, say, ages of 25 and 55, we calculate the lifetime income. And sorry to interrupt, but adjusted for inflation? Everything's adjusted for inflation. Okay. Yes. And then we calculate the distribution of the lifetime incomes of men who entered the labor market in late 1960s. And then we do it for every cohort that entered the labor market in 69, 1970, 71, all the way up to today. And one thing that we see, our data goes back about 60 years. So between the late 1950s and late 1960s, the lifetime income of the average man was actually increasing and increasing strongly. And that's a sign of a healthy economy. But starting the late 1960s to today, there is a decline of, depending on how exactly you measure, of between 10 to 20% in the lifetime income, uh, which is, I mean, surprising. But if you put in a different context, the U.S. economy income per capita has grown by about two and a half fold since that time. So in an economy that's growing like that, you have this group of, you know, average male workers whose lifetime income has been declining. And that's why I said there's a problem with men. There's a problem. Now, what about with women? So with women, the picture is very different. Uh, women, of course, in the 60s, they had a much lower lifetime income, and that was a combination of lower wages, but also fewer number of years that they were working during their lifetime. So over this period, you have seen a steady increase in the lifetime incomes of women. And that's be- behind what I mentioned before, that the distribution of incomes between women and women has converged quite a bit. And how do pensions, retirement savings, uh, health insurance plans, compensation, how does compensation of benefits, how does this affect uh, the calculation or does it? Uh, yes, it does. So compared to the 1970s, non-wage benefits, which is you know a lot of the things that you mentioned, and probably the most important component of that is health insurance, has increased quite dramatically. 
because healthcare costs have gone up and you know a lot more workers now are covered by health insurance. So we factor that into our analysis and it makes the decline in um, male earnings a bit smaller than the baseline number. But let me give you a, a figure. Over their lifetime, a man who entered, the average man who entered the labor market in 1983 was making between 100 to $250,000 less than the, a similar man who entered the labor market in 1968. So between a father and a son, the son is basically making, you know, 100 to $250,000 less. And that sounds like a huge number, but that's over... 60 years is not like an annual number. Yes, over over 35 years. 35 an annual years, number would be something like 3000 to $4,500. But over lifetime still matters because you can buy a median house with $250,000. Yes, exactly. Very much so. And does your data say anything about what might be going on with younger generations? Because your data ended, what, in 1983? Is that right? So 1983 is the last cohort that we observed the full history. Gotcha. Okay. But we can, cal- we can w- see partial cohorts. So cohorts that entered, say, in 1990, we, have, uh, we observed them until they are like age 47. We don't observe until. But that gives you still a pretty good idea. And unfortunately, there is not much good news in the sense that there's not much improvement in men's outcomes. If anything, there is some worsening. So let me give you one uh, statistic that when I teach my, my students, I say this is one of the most striking numbers I know in all of labor economics. If you look at the average male worker at age 25, their annual earnings was about $25,000. If you go back to 1968, the comparable number was $35,000. So there has been a decline of roughly 30% in the entry wage of male workers, average male workers, over 40 years. Okay, so what are the policy implications of this? I mean, what, I mean these are really striking numbers. Yes, so, so one thing that actually we found that I find very important is that it all goes to the entry wages. So let me explain. Uh, the the uh, lifetime income of younger cohorts could be declining, at the risk of oversimplifying, let me put it this way, uh, either because they enter, they start their career with a low wage, or they start their career with a high wage, but they don't see much wage growth. Okay. Yeah. It turns out that most of what happened is the first one, that their entry wage was lower and lower over time. So what this tells me is that if we want to understand the stagnation of wages for men, we really need to go to the years before they even enter the labor market. So we need to go to the the family factors. We need to go to K-12 education, college education, whether the quality of that has changed. And this is a different perspective because when we talk about wages, we talk a lot about, you know, what is going on in the labor market. We talk about trade. We talk about minimum wages. But these are factors that affect wage growth over the working years. And what we are finding is that by the time they enter, their wages were already low, and it did not grow basically faster than previous cohorts to make up for that loss. And does the sort of you know shape of the economy over this period of time have an influence? I mean, thinking about the rise of Silicon Valley and, mm-hmm. and high tech, and we had lots of the growth of international trade. I mean, you go back to 1968, I mean, there was international trade, but not the same uh, globalization wasn't a term that people were using that often. You know, all the things that people talk about when it comes to 
inequality using different measures when you're looking at lifetime? What about things like technology, globalization, deregulation? Mm -hmm. Very good question. So we looked at that. And the way we did that is we constructed the same lifetime income measures at the state level. So, you know, you can look at, for example, what was happening to median lifetime incomes in Minnesota versus in Georgia versus in California. And they were not all declining at the same rate. Actually, in some states, lifetime incomes were flat or even rising. So there is a lot of heterogeneity across states in how these, you know, male uh, lifetime earnings evolved. And we try to see how they correlate with the factors that you just mentioned. Because in some states you know, were more open to trade, so they were more affected by trade. Uh, there's also the decline of unionization. There's also you know, uh, demographic changes. Some states were older than others. Some states had different baby boom periods than others. At the end of all of that analysis, uh, there was not like a smoking gun that we thought actually there would be. We thought that, for example, the decline of unions would be important for the medium worker. We thought trade would be important. And we find some effects. But it's not basically, we cannot pinpoint and say it's all the unions or all basically manufacturing decline, which is another factor that we thought about. So uh, in a way, our research establishes these facts but pinpointing the reasons behind it, I think, will still take some time. So what do you want to do next with this data, with this information of, you know, lifetime inequality? In ongoing work, what we are looking at is the global picture. So we are looking across, you know, uh, countries. There is a new uh, data set that became available where we can look at the same uh, um, statistics or a subset of these statistics for about like 13 countries. And what you see is... What you see is a picture which, where inequality before you enter the labor market is even more important than what we see in the U.S. So this actually changes the focus, I think, on how we should approach inequality research or how should we identify the drivers of inequality. And it all points to going back before workers enter the labor market. And that's now what we are working on, trying to understand whether it's family factors, whether it's education, what has changed in the newer cohorts. Some people, for example, say it's video games, believe it or not, you know, for men. And they find some evidence of that, that, you know, if you look at the, the, the fraction of men who have a zero income, like don't work at all, uh, this, is a not, this is a somewhat poorly measured statistic because in a lot of the analysis, we drop those individuals before we do the analysis on workers who have some actual positive income. But if you look at workers with zero income among men, there's a, there has been an increase, steady increase since the 1970s. So we are kind of trying to dig more into that and trying to understand you know, the drivers of, of, of those. I'm looking forward to reading that. Sure. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Fatah Guvenin is an economist at the University of Minnesota. Heller Hurwitz Office Hours is a production of Matriarch Digital Media, hosted by me, Chris Farrell. Executive producer, Twilight Dang. Producer and editor, Beth K. Gibbs. Music by Bob Bradley. A special thanks to Heller Hurwitz's project manager, Eva Witter. To learn more about the research we discussed today, visit hhei.umn.edu. Tell a friend or two about this podcast. It helps. <laughs>